Hi, I'm Patrick Pacheco for the American Theatre Wing. Our subject for today is set design, and our featured guest is David Rockwell, the noted and prolific architect and set designer. There's probably no better place to have this conversation than here at the Public Theatre, where David has designed a restaurant space called the Library in what was once New York City's very first public library. So come on in and join us for this edition of Working in the Theater. Renaissance man may be an overused term. But that certainly applies to our main guest for today, David Rockwell. David is a noted architect and designer whose work has included hospitals, public spaces, playgrounds, an airline terminal, and numerous hotels and restaurants around the world. But we're here to talk about David's first love, the theater. That love has been passionately expressed in 14 Broadway shows, including Hairspray, Legally Bond, Catch Me If You Can, The Normal Heart, and more recently, Lucky Guy and Kinky Boots. Welcome, David. Thank you. Nice to be here. We're here in a space that you designed, a yep. restaurant in a theater. Tell us a little bit about your sort of inspirations for this theater, for this restaurant. Well, um, I was a fan uh, of the public theater long before I knew kind of what the significance of it was. Um, when I first came to New York, I started at college at Syracuse University in 74, and every summer I'd come to New York and was sort of addicted to coming to the public, not knowing what was going to be here, but the energy of the sense of community that happened here, and, and spontaneously picking something to see. That love uh, for the public continued, um, and then in 2002 I went on the board. I uh, was on the board for seven or eight years and, and was honored to have a chance to be a part of this amazing organization. When the public was renovating, uh, Oscar Eustace, who had taken over as the lead producer, the artistic director, uh, asked if I would like to do a piece of the renovation. And as we started to look for an opportunity, there was a, a space. This was uh, originally 25-foot tall open space. Huh. So there was no room here. And we talked about what could happen here that in some ways expressed the roots of the public theater as a library and was in some ways an inner sanctum. And that led to um, sort of creating a space that is uh, a little bit like a, a kind of smaller, warmer, clubby speakeasy um, access through a very small door. So we had to make a feature out of that. Uh, and have it be a, a, a tribute to a lot of the great artists who had worked here and have it in some ways be a kind of working space that would change based on what's at the public at the moment. How does the space prepare the patrons for what they're about to see? Often they'll come here, they'll sit down, they'll have a drink, and they're about to go into uh, to see a show. Does that work in this space? He, I, I think it works in a couple of ways and it's a little bit like um, I think what designers do is, is d obsessively plan and then what the world does is say it doesn't work that way, it works this way. Uh -huh. And it's one of the things that so fascinates me about work in the theater is understanding more about choreography and movement and uh -huh. understanding there's not only one way to go. 
So I think this room actually works in many different ways. It works if you're coming from the street and you walk into the lobby, which is now renovated and, and glorious and white, and you come up the stairs and you enter the, sm the smaller space, and I think it prepares you for the scale of the performance spaces. I also think it's a great place to go after the theater and have a chance to rub shoulders and talk about what it is you saw. Because I think what's, what's so energizing for me about theater as a designer, and it's true with public space and with restaurants, is that they're live, mm -hmm. they're spontaneous, they're changeable. So, um, so a lot of what we spend time laying out in a restaurant, banquette locations, everyone wants a corner. Uh, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a kind of translatable conversation to, in the theater, where is the power position on stage? Where does someone might make an entrance? So I guess my greatest joy is, is melding and mashing up those things. So this room on a very small scale was a chance to do that. You mentioned community early on, and when I was overlooking, when I was looking over your work, including numerous off-Broadway shows as well, I noticed that community, storytelling, and emotion seem to me the three main pillars of your work. And community obviously came up in The Normal Heart, which was directed by the former producer of uh, the public theater, George Producer is the right title, I got that. <laughs> yes, it is the right title. Uh, uh, George uh, C. Wolfe, with whom you've done many shows, three in fact. Yeah. Um, and one of the most powerful set designs that you did was for The Normal Heart. It was simple and yet very powerful. How did community and storytelling and emotion figure into that set? Well, um, those are three of the most significant factors in, in all of our design. And, and um, you know, I'm part of a, what I think of as a robust studio, and everyone's invited to bring their ideas to the table. And, and at the end of the day, uh, community is what I fell in love with about New York, about working in New York, and a lot of it's accidental community. You know, walking down the street, <laughs> you imagine the city from the air as this very organized place, but on the ground it's much more messy and vital. And so that sense of community that happens on the street, that happens in theaters, um, is, is uh, I would say, incredibly important to me, and it's how I fell in love with design. So as a, as a kid, we moved around a lot. We had a lot of sudden transitions, and building and making things, being part of community theater, as corny as that is, but the making of something that brought people together and created community, even if it was a temporal community, mattered. So on the normal heart, what we tried to do uh, was, in some ways, pay tribute to the original 1985 production. Here at the Public Theater. Here at the Public Theater, and of course, it it was about um, the AIDS crisis, which didn't have a name then. It was, mm -hmm. you know, it was that early on, uh, and there was a um, there was a sense that the set, in many ways, could be a kind of uh, monument and a tribute to those who were lost, and to those who, uh, you know, were part of that fight and that struggle. And of course, Larry Kramer. Um, is such a strong voice, and there's such incredible anger and passion in the play that uh, our feeling was if we could take the power of words and turn those into texture. Mm -hmm. So the three walls, which never touch the ceiling, so in a way they are a kind of uh, memorial. Mm -hmm. They're a kind of art installation. 
that doesn't attempt to totally seal off the theater space. And those words are grazed with light, so for a lot of the show, they're texture. They become the very texture of the show, the words that define the crisis at that period. We just made it a very fluid set of pieces that's set within that uh, um, environment that, that, um, that was built out of the language of the crisis. The uh, sense of emotions, storytelling, uh, and community particularly, you mentioned earlier, was uh, due in part to your mother, Joanne who was a, ran a community theater on the Jersey Shore and took you at the age of 11, I believe, to see Fiddler on the Roof, which was all about community yeah. um, and about Anna Tefka. When you saw Boris Aronson's designs, how much of an inspiration was that? Fiddler on the Roof was the first time I remember being knocked out by the combination and the collaboration of music, storytelling, dance, in visual storytelling. Mm. You know, and at 11, I didn't know anything about Anna Tefka or Boris Aronson's work or Chagall at that point, the, the early mm -hmm. references. But I instantly knew from the way people moved and what that world looked like that it was precarious, that uh, the sense of community was defined by the structure in the center. You know, it was, it was a great example for me of being able to contribute to something through visual storytelling. Uh, and, it, and it certainly, uh, to this day, and I, um, I don't know whether you know, but Lisa Aronson, Boris's wife and widow, passed away a week ago at, yeah. at 93 on her 93rd birthday. <laughs> um, an incredible woman, and I collect his work, and it, it became, um, for me, a, a real turning point. Another community that you created with George was in Lucky Guy um, by the late Nora Ephron. What are some of the first conversations you had with George about Lucky Guy? I'm smiling because when we first got into rehearsal, and we first got on stage for the first day of tech, and we, we set something up, George said, just set it up so I can see what it looks like. And they went, wrong. He said, I'm just practicing. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> George is a very vocal guy, uh -huh. very passionate. Um, we started out by... Um, you know, I read the script. I did a lot of photo research. He uh, drove us for photo research with as many specifics as we could, right? So this is the '80s now, New York in the '80s, mid '80s, tabloid uh, world, tabloid world, heavy graffiti. You know, kind of a messy Ed Koch period. Um, in, in some ways, the period of the normal heart as well. Right. Uh, and most of the locations were newsrooms. The Post, the Daily News, Newsday. I set about trying to get as much detailed research of what those newsrooms looked like, knowing that the script was uh, very cinematic in terms of location. So we had to instantly go from one location to another, and we knew it couldn't be bogged down with heavy transitions. So we synthesized it down to uh, a couple of elements. One was the, the ceiling. There's mm -hmm. a kind of grid uh, hung ceiling that is ubiquitous with every newsroom, S whether they were smoke-filled and in the first <laughs> act in the mid-80s or smoke-filled in the second act in the mid-90s or not. But that compression um, was a big decision. It was something uh, we, we, we built many models of and, uh, and we played with it as a projection device as well. So it creates a compression, but it also allows us to project 
onto the ceiling and onto the back wall. Uh-huh. And then um, we talked about how things would be moved and whether they were automated or actor-driven. And, and it was really um, George's thought that as much as possible, if the movement of the furniture became a kind of choreography, that it would give it an uh, energy. And so, it became, and so we started with very small model pieces in this compressed world with uh, images that represented what the projected content would be. Uh, and it was, it, was, it was very difficult to make it move at the speed of the play. But that was the goal. You know, that's the design challenge, is to embrace the play as written and to create that kind of swirl of history. George has directed both dramas and musicals. Yeah. Did it help that he had a musical background in terms of how to devise that? Yeah, absolutely. He, he thinks musically. He, um, he also is able to creep, keep an unbelievable energy in the rehearsal room. And that's a lot of, like, big guy energy that he had to, to motivate. And Tom Hanks was and is an incredible leader. Uh, so from day one in the rehearsal room, I think we all had a sense that we were, um, we were doing something significant. And um, I knew Nora a bit, and she wanted me to do that play. Uh, and I think everyone felt like we were, you know, had a chance to do something original and uh, everyone contributed to the same thing. It's like when a show really works, everyone is telling the exact same story. Nora had died by the time I guess you got into the nitty-gritty of things. Um, was there a moment when you thought, gosh, I wish you were alive so I could ask her this no, about the set? No, because my relationship, once something's in production, isn't really with a writer, it's with a director. Mm -hmm. um, and I think George felt like having developed it over such a long period of time with Nora that, uh, that he had a good sense of how to do that. And I would say everyone felt like, you know, for a very high visibility new play with a recently passed away major writer and, and a big star, there was none of that pressure. Part of it was everyone felt like, you know, we all felt like we wanted to do this work and um, it had a kind of spontaneity to it. There's a weightlessness and fluidity that characterizes your work. Things fly in. They're very weight, you know, they have a certain weightlessness to it. And you're all probably also helped by technology and projections. What are the dangers of technology? What do you have to keep your mind on whenever you're looking at something technological in terms of the, your goals, your immediate emotional goals in creating something for a set? I, I think that technology is an incredible tool and um, in our architecture we actually have a small technology lab within Rockwell Group that develops interactive technologies that engage people in space versus separating them. One example of that is in the JetBlue terminal in T5 there's an oval ring mm -hmm. that sits uh, over the main public space that greets you when you're leaving or arriving. Uh -huh. uh, and it has technology that allows JetBlue to put art installations that react to you in real time, messaging that, that, so that's technology in service of a real connection. I think the danger is in falling in love with technology so much that it becomes a kind of crutch. Technology has is, is changed the world, it's changed how kids perceive information, so how, what their attention span is. In the theater, 
technology can also lock you into a stage picture that takes so long to undo that it removes any of that fluidity. Oh. So, uh, you know, I just think it's a balance. Getting back to something that you said about the terminal and, and something that you said in general is that people like to move around in circles. Right. You know, entrances and exits, off and on and off the merry-go-round. Right. Did that figure in Lucky Guy? It did. Um, one of the things about the set in Lucky Guy is there is no uh, center upstage entrance. Uh -huh. So. And you know that's a, a conscious decision because there's there's an LED wall in that position. So we talked about how people are going to get in and out, and there is a kind of swirl to the way the show moves, starting with um, the bar, which feels like a very solid environment. And part mm -hmm. of the reason that's true is uh, that is you know in some ways that bar is the last remnant of what these Old, guys. Uh, old Irish reporters and policemen believe is the world. That's mm -hmm. you know, and as that flies away, and the city becomes more of these fragments, but the bar stays on stage, so th they can still stay anchored to this this thing that makes them feel connected. Um, the desks move in a in a in a pattern that's very much like a dance. Hmm. The, the, there's a Brechtian moment that Nora wrote in, and that was smoke machine comes in, and you see the smoke machine yeah. come in, the stagehand comes in with a smoke machine, creates the smoke. Did that dictate, this Brechtian moment, did that, that dictate your set for Lucky Guy? No, but one of the things it did is, in, in reading the script, um, it calls for a kind of, I think, urban, mid-80s New York version of Nicholas Nickleby, uh -huh. where there's a sense that the actors are making it themselves. and. Um, so that, that did dictate a lot of the set, that, um, that there were a lanes is one window mm -hmm. and a table. Uh, and there are three or four bars that are real locations. The lion's head is an awning, mm -hmm. which is the thing people remember the most, although they remember this lion that was in there that we just <laughs> couldn't find any <laughs> real images of. Um, so the way it was written did dictate um, a kind of noir, black and white, approach to the work. And you're dealing with a large cast. Once the cast gets on the set, are there modifications to be made because of the demands of the actors or what the actors want or need, perhaps, once they're on the set and on stage? Yeah, and what you try and do is have um, those things built in the rehearsal room mm -hmm. so that they can try them, but many, many things changed when they got on stage. In fact, in the case of Lucky Guy, what happened when the actors got on stage is we removed more and more scenery. So the show became lighter and airier. Huh. A good example is the restaurant at the end of the first act where Mac Larry and um, his lawyer, Eddie, Eddie Hayes, mm -hmm. are having a discussion. And you can see that Mac Larry is starting to really commit to becoming Jimmy Breslin. Mm -hmm. It's when he falls in love with that power idea. And we had a beautiful banquet, beautiful banquet. And um, on stage, it just felt like it wasn't big enough. But you, you know, a banquet depends on intimacy. You can't make it bigger, or it's a barge. <laughs> so uh, we ultimately got rid of the banquet and did it way downstage with a table, two chairs, and a projection piece in one ashtray. <laughs> And the ashtray, while it's a very small piece, actually defines the center of that picture and gives it a kind of focus.
In the minutes that we have left, just to back up, do you draw? I do. Do you use the computer? How, how, well, what are the steps that you go through once you have a blank piece of paper, what Sondheim calls the most beautiful thing in the world? Uh, what, what's your first step? <clears throat> Frank Lloyd Wright used to say, never start drawing until you know what you're going to draw. I don't do that. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I doodle immediately. And um, I start out with a lot of research. And I do find that directors appreciate, and it's not just research that's linear, like here's the location, but um, in the case of uh, Kinky Boots, a lot of the research was about other forms of machinery. Mm -hmm. That if you think about craftsmanship, you mm -hmm. want to believe that this, this, this factory is a real working place, so all of a set actually physically does something. So we looked at other forms of extreme craftsmanship and how things were put together. So what I'll usually do is get all of that research and sit and start to sketch and try and find, and, and you have to take many routes to get to it, the engine of the show. What's uh -huh, the physical the engine? What's the motor? What's the fabric of it? David, what's the one bit of advice you would give to anybody who wants to go into set design? Well. That's such a, that's a, if you can only give one piece, it's like, <laughs> what would you take with you? I, I would start by seeing everything you can. I would, I would take a sketchbook, which is, I take a sketchbook everywhere I go, see everything. Um, and by the way, it's the same thing I advise kids who want to study restaurant design. When you go to a restaurant, measure the tables. Just start to understand those uh, those ideas and then sketch what your response to the play might be. So after you've seen it, um, it's just a, an interesting exercise to keep fluid. Would it be advisable to ask them how they might modify the set, improve it, change it? Yeah. In terms of what, what they've seen? Yeah, but I think seeing as much as you can because there's so much great work in New York on Broadway, off-Broadway, fringe theater and just start doodling and sketching and, and, and think about what your response to that play might be. How would it be different? And emotion is number one? Your emotional response to the show? I would say it's a combination of emotional and storytelling. Because I think that's the, that's the world designers live in, is how do you tell that story to have an emotional impact? What changes? What's the transition? Um, and as compared to architecture, where the physical world can't really change, you're able to create this, this piece that changes over time. And that's a frontier that we'll explore in the next segment. But thank you so much for this segment and look forward to continuing the conversation with two of your collaborators, Jack O'Brien and Jerry Mitchell. Thanks very much. We're now joined by director Jack O'Brien and director choreographer Jerry Mitchell. As a team, Jack and Jerry have worked with David on three shows, Hairspray, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, and Catch Me If You Can. Individually, David has worked with Jerry on two shows, Legally Blonde and Kinky Boots, and with Jack on the new drama, Dead Accounts. Welcome to you both. Jack is really a choreographer too, you <laughs> I can dance a little. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I can trip that light well, fantastic. Right. Don't think I can. <laughs> so gentlemen, tell me, what's the first thing you think of when you hire David? That well, I don't I have to point. worry anymore. <laughs> Thank God. Yeah. No, I mean, it's so interesting because I, I, historically, Jerry brought David and me together because they had done Rocky Horror together. 
And when Hairspray came up, Jerry said, as usually he will with me, I know who we need to have. And I usually say, okay. And we had this wonderful breakfast, the yep. three of us. At coffee shop. At coffee shop. At the coffee shop in the corner. Square. Yep, Union Square. And we've never looked back. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know whether this is apocryphal or not, but if you see it as a job, uh, I think it is a job. If you're dealing with your friends, it's time that you love to be together in which creative things happen. And I think the reason we've all worked together and love to work together over the years is because we always have a great time. This will be the exception. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you're talking about a playful quality that David has. Did that come into play in Hairspray when you were putting it together? Oh, God, yeah. Don't you remember we went, well, What is that? He went, we went to his There's a cowbell in here. <laughs> There's a cow here. <laughs> is, is that my fault? <laughs> Are my teeth clattering? What is it? <laughs> Uh, yes, I, I, uh, playful is abs. Well, we do play. I we mean, did, yeah. He brought in all the '60s toys. That's how we got the light bright bulb. That's exactly right. It was and Necco wafers. Yeah, and Necco wafers and yeah, all that stuff. Uh, talk about hairspray for a minute, because you recreate. There's a time period called the '60s, but it's the '60s, David, not as the '60s, but '60s with a modern sensibility. How do you locate a certain time and yet not make it specifically that time? Well, you, you mentioned the idea of play, and I'm thinking about the first real presentation that we had on Hairspray, where I filled a very big conference room with 20 boards. Mm -hmm. So I had solved every moment of the show before the me first meeting, <laughs> and, I kind of like, and uh, so Jack and Jerry came in, and they looked around, and, and I looked at images from the period, and I looked at the kind of innocence I thought of the period. They walked around. They both gave me a hug and they said, this is fabulous. Now let's take everything out <laughs> and let's start with what we need to bring in to tell the story. Yeah, but those boards, David, that is one of the great things that David does on every show. Mm -hmm. he, you walk in for your first meeting or your first official meeting at the office and he's collected so much research, he calls them mood boards, but it can be a whole board can be just on color of the period that mm -hmm. you're dealing with. Another board can just be on shoes of the period, uh, in, which has nothing to do with the, the way the set is going to be designed, although it might have been kinky boots. But literally, it's about, it's about the feeling of the piece that you're starting to discover and talk about. It's and a vocabulary it, thing. It's the yeah, mood. It becomes, it becomes the and, you know, And pull, somebody pull has said, it. somebody said, here is the, here's the aquarium in which we are swimming. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Everything in here is game. What do you like? Yeah. And sometimes you don't, some of it doesn't make any sense, and sometimes you're galvanized by an image or a silhouette or something that you think, that's it, that's what I feel. In, in the case of Hairspray, part of the way we got, part of the way we got so far from literal, because when you look at those, if you look at the shows from that period, they're a disappointment based on what your memory is. You know, you have a memory of the most. Yeah. And um, so we didn't want to be literal about it, but there was, there was something about the sense of um, playfulness, the simplicity of line, the use of color. Color. And, um, and the scale. The scale was what was so brilliant. Well, there's that great bird's eye shot that start, started the whole show of Tracy Turnblad. <laughs> in Jerry, Ma Jerry Mitchell. 
Is I was that, is that, is that well, what it was? Well, Called me up in the morning. I was in bed. Called me up. singing the song, Good Morning Baltimore. Mark and Scott had given us CDs of all of the songs. And uh -huh. I, I would just listen to them over and over and over. And I was in bed, lying in bed, looking at the ceiling, singing Good Morning Baltimore. And I just woken up and I went, that's how it starts. She's in bed and the audience is the ceiling. And David, then did you take it to the bird's eye perspective? Did no, you? Well, what, no, he first took it to like almost the bird's eye perspective. I said, no, we no. Can't. I said, no, no, it has to be like that. And then we finally got it right. And, and the thing about once we got the angle of it right in Seattle, when we did that. We had to change all the sheets. We, the we had a very different, we had a more graphic idea. And, and part of what, you know, I talked earlier about finding the engine or the, like the key idea. I think with Hairspray, we wanted to tell the story from the point of view of Tracy Turnblad. Yeah. Uh -huh. So the bed became simpler. We Remember we went out and found, I had to find all the pink shag carpeting we yeah. could find in Seattle. <laughs> and then the bedroom turned around and became the house, yeah. uh -huh. um, which you know gave her a chance to, to have that piece be hers, not something that was alien to her. And did the tone of the piece come from your sets, from the music? How did you establish the, the optimistic tone of the piece? Did it come from Harvey? You mean from me? the visual? Yeah. yeah. From his way of thinking. I remember he sent Jack and I each a big, big thing of Twizzler, uh, Twizzler <laughs> yes. um, licorice, a big package, and a bottle of red wine. And the instructions were first drink the bottle of wine, then lay the licorice <laughs> out on your bed. This is what I'm thinking of for the curtain. Because yep. the whole curtain was made out of tubing. Seven miles of it. Tubing, it? tubing. And oh, then it wow. lifted to become her bouffant hairdo. Because it was originally going to be hair. Yeah, which ended up being too expensive, and yeah. Margaret and also and too heavy. Hair looked good in a quarter-inch model. <laughs> yeah. The idea of like a, it was a mo hair the most depressing <laughs> thing you've ever seen. That became a Twizzler curtain. Yes. Right, it's terrifying. But it was what was so beautiful about that curtain also, and the design of it was it looked like a curtain, and then it turned into the uh, the eventatorium and hair bouffant do with the clip in it. Also, the color behind the red was a blue That's which right. made your eye almost you know that thing what is it called Mure when moray moray fabric yeah. makes you go like this it's moray. a kind of electric it made that happen it made that happen and that and that curtain also in some ways channels a kind of slightly john waters bizarro version of lawrence welk okay yeah, so yeah. the now you notice how quiet i am <laughs> no this is this is true uh you have to understand when we went back and talked about relationships and friendships and stuff, the enthusiasm, the, voc the vocabulary that visually leaps between these two men began with Rocky Horror Show. Uh -huh. I was brought in to sit at a breakfast table. And for the first three weeks of Hairspray, I sat and watched Jerry do the first four numbers because it starts out with four numbers. Um, I was catching up for a long time and still am in a certain way. Bec no, and I don't say this in a defensive way. No, no. Uh, it's extraordinary because we do different things with each other, and as a group we do different things. Terrible. And so basically, uh, I learned, because I'm very mouthy too, have you noticed that? <laughs> uh, uh, I learned basically to watch the electricity leaping between them, let them settle down, and then comment, which uh, has been until David and I started working by ourselves without Mr. Mouth over there, um, uh, which is fairly recent. Um, uh, it, it was a whole different methodology. 
and it was very helpful to us as a unit, I think. That's all I have to say. How well, I remember the first time I worked as a director with David uh, without Jack, which was Legally Blonde, and it was very lonely. Mm -hmm. It was really weird. It was weird because we do have a special, the three of us, a special sort of yeah, we do. Uh, uh, unit, cohesiveness that makes it comfort. You know, comfort. And also, I think, reinforce the best parts. So yeah, I absolutely. Think yeah. I think there's, you know, it, there's, everything's a risk. You know, who, who knows what an audience is going to respond to? Right. And I think there's a kind of, like, clarity and confidence about finding the way to tell the story. You asked the question earlier about do things change in previews. Oh. I was terrified to go into Seattle, which Jack insisted on, we not have the set for the finale. And we had no set. Yeah. Well, we had a lot of things change from Seattle. One of the one of the things one of the things I remember specifically was Motormouth's unit oh my was God. much more a abstract right. idea. It was just records, 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 records. This big, big background. We realized we needed something more, more real. And I came back to New York and designed that. Why we're he, in Seattle? He sketched it on on his piece of paper like he did and showed it to us, and they made that. The, the Dynamites, the Dynamites, uh -huh. which mm -hmm. was an, an interesting story because uh, first, first time we were in his office, we were looking at those mood, mood boards, and there was no three girls singing in the Dynamites. That was not planned until I saw a picture on the wall of a, a, a group, and it was a guy in a red jacket and three African-American girls in red dresses. And I said, what if we got rid of the guy and we had those three girls come out of the poster and be sort of the Greek chorus that takes them on the journey? And that's how that number began. We didn't have a bridge in that number. Nope. We didn't have a lot of stuff in that number. And then we designed it in Seattle and it would come on in one. So the girls were in the poster and it would truck on in one. And William had made that beautiful dress with all those little beads. And all you could see were the beads going like this. <laughs> <laughs> the girls were trucking on. I said, oh, that's never going to work. we got to put them in two. So we put them in two behind the wall and revealed them. And suddenly it was magical. Yeah, that's great. It was magical. Well, ah. you forget we had to bring the people in. Oh, yeah, yeah. That we, built the living. There's some West Coast thing where they build living versions of know, paintings. Uh, uh, uh. What is that? Oh, yes, the, the, the pageant of the masters. Yes. We, we brought them right, in. Right, right. Laguna Beach. I Laguna had Beach. Met him, I had met him when I was in the Will Rogers Follies. He came and did the living pictures in the Will Rogers Follies, painted us into the pictures. And so I said to David, we should get this guy to come help us make this really look like they're coming out of the poster. So he, um, he, he worked with us, and we went back to Bill Minchin's shop and There's, rebuilt that whole thing. When you're directing traffic, obviously the actors and when you're choreographing is that pretty fairly well preset before he makes his design so that you know you know this you need this amount of space in order to choreograph your numbers or you need this amount of space to get people on and off or is the set modified as you go along no i i don't think that i lead uh, as a director that in any way shape or form we agree on an environment in which uh, we think will solve the problem, then it's my job to inhabit habit it at its best, but not to sort of impose my needs on that. That's a different aspect. And, and as far as choreography goes, the only thing I need to know before we get into the theater, which we usually decide on before, is how much depth am I going to have for each number. 
I have a tendency. And the shape of the floor. You need yeah, to know I need about to the know floor. Where my mm -hmm. space is. But I have a tendency to like to push it all downstage. I don't really enjoy a lot of upstage depth, particularly in a cast size which is less than 30. Uh -huh. I like to keep it on, on the audience's lap, so to speak. It's one of the reasons why Kinky Boots is that intimate. Yeah, is we, Kinky we, is very intimate. The process of that model was it was much more open, and we kept pushing it smaller and smaller and smaller so that people didn't feel lost. And the Hairspray and, and Kinky, strangely enough, have a lot of similarities because there are two groups of people. In, in Hairspray, it was the African-American kids, the Motormouth Gang, we called them, and then the nicest kids in town. In Kinky Boots, it's the factory workers and Lola's club. Uh -huh. And they often work together, but often they also work apart. So you're dealing with half of your cast on stage instead of your whole cast. David, you started working with Jack <coughs> and Jerry two years into your career, um, in 2002. What did you learn from them about the craft of making theater? Um, the most important things that you learned from them? It's a huge list. I learned um, that it can be an unbelievably joyful experience perhaps a slightly unreplicatable joyful experience in the case of the success of Hairspray. I remember in the early previews, I didn't know, I thought that's just what it was like. I thought that's what, you know, <laughs> and, and they said it's not always like this. Um, I learned a lot about um, collaboration, which is one of the things in architecture that I think separates us is we really embrace collaboration and do a lot of projects with other other groups because I think that kind of mashup and having the confidence to do that. So I was working with you know two masters who were at the top of their game and really wanted to have fun and at the same time didn't want anything that wasn't part of that rigorous telling the story. I remember one major lesson I learned I came back to New York for a few days during tech and got all these phone calls that the producer was flipping out for a bunch of, the producers flipped out for a lot of reasons, as producers do. But this one was because we had these towers upstage, where the original concept was the cast was going to hang out on the towers. Right. And it turns out that isn't what wanted to happen. So everyone was terrified about what to do empty in New York to get rid of the empty towers. And they were downstage of the light bright wall for the whole show in Seattle until, until... So I came out to the theater and walked the stage with Jack and Jerry and everyone was panicked and it looked like an insurmountable thing. And we didn't try and solve it right there. No. We, we had a drink, we talked <laughs> we about it. We had several drinks. And Twizzlers. <laughs> uh, and we looked at the pluses and minuses and it turned out to be not such a complicated physical solution, but it had to come out of prior. a lot of weights. <laughs> and figure out the priorities. Yeah, we, yeah, and we ended up lifting the wall when we could moving the towers upstage and lowering the wall. So we had to counterweight that wall, which was extremely heavy in its first incarnation right. because they, we created that wall. It never existed. No one ever saw that. And that, that, that was actually an architectural lighting fixture that Ken Posner found that's used for a downlight with essentially what, what translated the, um, the light bright into that scale was like a Tupperware party. There were these, these uh. plastic things that we made that went over it. Um, because when we were playing with this light bright wall, which we would do endlessly in meetings, we realized if you want to say something signals uh, the 60s in, in Welcome to the 60s, if we were going to reveal one element that stays with the show the rest of the show, that that, that had to be it. 
To what extent does budget play a role when a change like this comes up? Is that why the producers were freaking out, or well, was look, it a, 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 the consideration? Budget is always there. And I mean, <laughs> the trick is basically, which way do you want to look at it? From budget up or from ideas down? And very often the producers, the minute you, we get excited, which we always do when we're together, they see the dollar signs going up. And they want to say, now remember, no, you can't have any crew, and you can't have any mechanical parts, and you can't have you know, blah, blah, blah. And you want to say, get the hell out of our faces. The truth of the matter is, we have to dream first. And w then we fall in love with things that we are reluctant or will not give up. And then that is incumbent upon our work as collaborators and artists to say, okay, you say I can't have that, watch this. Uh -huh. And you know, I think it was Gilgood who said, theater is the art of compromise. And it is. When you are given everything you want, you know what? It's usually not very good. But when there are restrictions, ultimately, and you are passionately involved with what you're, uh, what is, you're creating, you find a way to make it happen. Mm -hmm. So the, we know the budget, like the boogeyman, is always there in the closet. But we don't want to see the boogeyman until <laughs> we get <laughs> finished dreaming. David, coming from the world of architecture, did you have to make adjustments in terms of what money you had to spend on your sets? No, I wouldn't say. I mean, they're not relative. The, the, the one interesting analogy I find, which was an interesting commonality, is in the world of restaurants, and we've done a lot of restaurants, the opening cost is one issue, but the running cost is what really matters. Yeah. So if there's a chef who's more interested in reviews than running a long time, you can have food costs that are so high that the restaurant can't really survive. So in a, in a restaurant, part of it is I, I feel the chef and the designer having a common point of view. And in, in theater, I found that to be very true. And you have to have your collaborators, your, your, your director, your choreographer, be willing to help make a case for what the priorities are. You have to have some, some courage to say, we'll have this and we won't have that. Or um, I also find like architecture, it's about relationships. So it's being able to talk to the shops, figure out what what you really need, settle for a little bit less. But you need to have enough of that magic. It, you know, I think producers flip out because they don't have the language to say, how do we solve all this and still have some magic? Mm -hmm. And I think that's what, what our job is. And being able to, to support each other on doing that is, is thrilling beyond anything you can imagine. Uh, Jerry uh, and, and Jack, uh, David comes from a multi a disciplinary world. To what extent, you obviously work with other set designers that didn't have quite that background. What did, coming from that background, what strengths did you discover in David perhaps that you couldn't have gotten perhaps from another set designer? Well, quite that background. Mm -hmm. No one has that background. Yeah. I mean, uh, you, you know, I say this affectionately. Jerry once pulled me aside and said, apropos of this, do you realize that David Rockwell is probably the most famous person we know? <laughs> Meaning, basically, there are so many fields in which he is revered and loved and probably terribly scared, people <laughs> scared to death. But you get, this, um, you get this world with David's sort of 
comprehension, which is not just protecting the theater or what's on stage. He, with an architect's eye and with a philosopher's mind, uh, is there with us in the clouds, not just nailing things down, but sort of very often encouraging us to speak first, uh, to find out what, where maybe our temperature is, where we're going, before he lands anything, and that's very rare, don't you it's, think? It's um, you you know, you once said something that I always uh, remember, and one of the reasons I love being in the room with David so much is because of this. He said, "If I something like if I knew, if I knew what it was supposed to be before I did it." it wouldn't be any fun. It mm -hmm. wouldn't be interesting to create it if I knew what right. it was I was going to create. Not knowing the answers. Not knowing the answers is what makes it so fun to design something with David because it is sort of, sort of a search, it's a, it's a mission. You're on the same mission to discover how you're going to visualize this story. Is it scary? Well, it's the ideal it's, climate it's in more everything exciting. we do. It's more exciting. Absolutely. It's true of, I, I it's true of dance. Scary. It's, true it's of, more exciting. Yeah. yeah. When you don't know and you are holding your hands and jumping together. It, becomes, it becomes what, what can we do as opposed to what do we have to do. That's right. And David just paints on a very wide. Yeah. It, it leaves large whole, canvas. Everything's possible. Everything's possible. That's a fun way to work. Uh, getting back to Hairspray, you worked with obviously the Courtney Collins show and television. Uh, in terms of those scenes. Were those difficult to design, David? Was uh, the role of television in that musical, how did that evolve? About difficult. There was a lot of research that we did on what those looked mm -hmm. like backstage, and one of the results of that was the microphone iris. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, with the lights. With the lights, and, and originally we had more thoughts about onstage equipment and offstage equipment, but I think there was something very freeing about um, the Corny Collins show in that TV world being represented by color, those sort of Necco wafer pieces, and, um, uh, the, and the, the sheer curtain, the sheer curtain, the podium, and the stand that we could move anywhere we wanted to, because Jack wanted to put the cameras out in front on the pa on right. the uh, proscenium, so the actors had to look at the different Act cameras. As if they were looking for the so camera. we didn't have to yeah. put the cameras on stage. We made you believe they were out front. And right. the Turnblad home became a mobile piece so they could dance around that. Um, so the worlds could again sort of dance the in time. the space. At so the same by time. having the minimum amount that we needed to to create the TV world, you could meld the worlds more. Um, it became less became more fluid. And, but even and the house, I mean that was one of the great things about the show is as, as, as we, we set up the show, we set up the vocabulary, but as you go back to a scene, you don't have to bring all of the scenery back. The audience knows what you're mm -hmm. talking about. So we would bring back just the ironing board and the lamp. Then we would bring back just the TV and the lamp and the phone. Whatever was required for that moment to tell a story because we had already introduced what was the Turnblad home. The ironing board was like the mother courage. That was like, right? She, she had that with her at all times. But, the, but it was like moving from a master shot into a close-up. Yeah. And once we had established that vocabulary, we had the luxury because we'd made the statement, we could be selective. Has that, uh, those shortcuts with the audience evolved as the years have gone on where you can we're do all We're all in a very interesting, fluid situation, which is highly influenced first by the development of film and film techniques, 
and now, of course, by the internet. Um, you know, I'm I'm constantly uh, when I'm asked to do speeches about this, and I talk a lot about Shakespeare because I've had a lot of experience with it. And for instance, talking about a soliloquy, uh, a soliloquy in Shakespeare's time was an actor standing on stage and making a noise like the Metropolitan Opera. They had never heard language like that, and he just stood. It's basically spoken thought, or he's speaking to the audience, whatever choice it is. But there's no action required. Then I keep saying to people, look, go home, turn on a network show, and tap a pencil, turn the volume down, tap a pencil every time the image changes, which means that the ocular nerve is being jerked, and that's candy. Uh -huh. And the ear, which is the conduit to the brain, is lagging behind. So we have had to learn, all of us, new techniques for how to make the stage, which is basically static, into something that seems to be moving because people can no longer listen unless you're constantly changing the venue. Mm -hmm. and, and now the internet, even more than that, with people playing, you know, games on, on, you know, on their phones and texting and all this sort of stuff. It's changed, we're constantly learning new techniques that have to be appropriated into what we do. David, how has that, what, what Jack just referred to, affected your visual palette and can you apply that to what you may have done on Catch Me If You Can which was very cinematic in fact to all the work that you've done I think are based on films um, as well. Well I think the, the one other factor I would add to that is theater is live and communal right so there is that additional beat where the TV doesn't talk back to you and the internet although being the father of 13 year old boy and 11 year old girl they do a lot of gaming that is social and communal but I think in, in, in the theater now, there's less patience for, and frankly, both of you had no patience for it on, on, on Hairspray when we did Hairspray. None of us were interested in bringing in a curtain and changing the set. That transition that says, we're going to do this, and we're going to take our time, and then we're going to bring up a new world. Those worlds had to weave from one to the other. Well, also, those, that doesn't happen in the writing. They used, you know, the old musicals, they used to close the curtain and they'd do the in one number while the scenery was being changed. That's not the way shows are written anymore. Right. They're written from one big scene to the next big scene to the next big scene to the next big scene. So you have to discover the, the vocabulary in your transitions, which, by the way, can break, make or break a musical if they're not done right. So right. catch me if you can. One example of that is Man Inside the Clues, which is a song that takes place in three or four locations, right? It takes, mm -hmm. so we, and we talked about, do we change motels? You don't really need to change motels. You have a TV, you have an element, and then there's signs that we see that come in electrified in different ways against the bandstand. Well, he actually gets on top of the bandstand at the end of the number. So there's a, there's cinematic movement with, without having to have that heavy bring in the location. The sign, don't change the room. In terms of, of uh, tone and the fact that um, in Catch Me If You Can, you had both the gritty world and the realistic world and the magical world, those tones that you established, how did sets apply to when you were dealing with the father and the real problems of Frank Abagnale? Abagnale. Versus the fantasy world that you were creating. One of the things we wanted to try and do was that show, more than most shows, was really about the music. So the band is part of the, the architecture of the show and part of the 
concept was he was experiencing this as a, as a TV spectacular. So the challenge became, how do you take away the band when you need it? How do you, so there's a big sheer curtain that comes in that really represents fantasy. But there's also elements of a kind of simple bed, and the bed is something that repeats in, in different scenes. And as simple as what the end table is, the lamp and the bedding, is radically different in the real world than in the fantasy mm -hmm. world. Mm -hmm. So if you have a repetitive element that you treat in very different ways, I think the audience gets the idea that this is what he's trying to get away from, and that's what he's trying to go to. And you handle that in, in Kinky Boots as well. There is the dreary uh, world of the factory. <laughs> the dreary factory. <laughs> the dreary factory. <laughs> and then the explosively colorful world of Lola. Yes. And, and Romantically you, you, dreary. I would, dreary is not I, the I word I would I use. think it's, yeah, I think I it's I thought dreary. it was stunning. <laughs> yeah. Well, well we, when we started the design, I knew that I wanted this show like Hairspray and like all the shows that Jack and I and David have done either together or, or alone to move move quickly and and not let the, I, I hate when the audience gets bored watching scenery change I think David hates that too so we always are looking for how do we get to the scene quickly I knew I wanted a sense of reality in the factory workers so I and I didn't want any tracks in the floor because of the kinky boots because I didn't want anybody getting their foot caught in the track which left us no option for automation in the deck so uh, but my but my real I think one of my first questions to David was do you think we can move everything on the stage by the factory workers because I believe mm -hmm. it will give them purpose in the factory mm -hmm. this is the show where you actually can use them as factory workers moving the stairs moving the units because they are actually there doing the work yeah. there's, a, there's a kind of romance to the industrial uh, nature of the show that I think relates to we were working on a project outside of uh, Philadelphia and Bethlehem in the old blast furnaces that used to make the steel and I think there's a there's a romance to the idea of craftsmanship and making that informed the factory and one of the things we talked about is through clear story windows and many other devices walls that opened and closed in fact platforms that could rotate and light up and become the proscenium you would have that thrill of believing in this place, and every part of it is part of that kind of romantic industrial architecture. And once Lola enters the scene, you see those changes yeah. in the factory. Yeah, that, well, the, 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 center, the center office unit, we call it, as it turns, it becomes the pub. As it turns again, a curtain drops, it becomes the, the club in London where Lola's performing. It opens up and it's a boxing And little rivets mm -hmm. light up, and it opens up and becomes the background of the boxing ring. And and you mentioned David earlier that uh, that Jerry had taken a model to the beach, yeah, and it's sort of <laughs> well, we built what a, was the model? We built the whole model, the whole show. We built the, the very entire show. It was all designed by them. Yeah. yeah, it was all designed, and each piece. I mean, when you when you look at that platform, it's two pieces, two visible stairs, an escape stair, and it can engage the walls in any one of those places. Um, all so the pieces were designed. Yeah, and I needed now to sit with it and block the show to make sure I had enough people to make each move because the, the, all of the moves on the deck were going to be done by the factory workers. I spent like two weeks with it. You shipped it out to me. And uh, the salt water slowly <laughs> warped, warped <laughs> everything. But it was okay. 
And was we that were thinking of making the set warped like that because <laughs> it came back. And was that sensational uh, conveyor belt number uh, done by that time, choreographed by that time? It was, did it inspire <laughs> that number? <laughs> the conveyor belt was built. The conveyor belt was the first one. It took us about. It took us probably about six to nine months. A to, huge amount of R and D to create that. Yeah, we we. I had the idea. Uh, I asked David to build me one. They built me one. I got on it. I fell to the floor about six times. We looked at available technology before we built one. Sent it back to the shop. Said I need I need bars to stand, choreograph stand and here. and to make sure Equity will let me put actors on it. Uh, it was on a dial, so the Variable speeds speed. were all over the place. I said this has got to be two speeds: one for the shoes, one for the dance. Had the drummer in the room. Picked the speed, said it was Stephen Aremis, set, picked my two speeds, sent it back to the shop. He's then bossy. I, then, <laughs> very, yeah, very bossy. Then it came back and I said, okay, now I need all of these controls on the unit for the actors. Because wow. I'm going to make them be responsible for it. It will be the best way to do it. We, we have to, I'm sorry, go ahead. We could go on all day, we but I don't think we can. We have to wrap up. We, we have do. to wrap up. I just want to wrap up by saying you've got future projects together. Just one thing that you can say about Houdini. On the way to Houdini. <laughs> Anything set related about Houdini? No, we're, we're in the dreaming part right now. We're, we're beginning to find a vocabulary and we're beginning to talk to each other about where we could start and what we think we need. But that's actually interesting that you bring it up. Next week we have two days together by ourselves. Uh, a luxury we've not afforded ourselves yet because we just now know it's going to happen that way. So Fantastic. And a future collaboration for the two of you? Oh yeah, we're gonna do a new restaurant. You're really? With Mexican restaurant? Yeah, we're doing a Mexican restaurant. El <laughs> Seriously? Yeah, with with girls in fiesta hats who dance <laughs> between the courses. <laughs> We've got a couple things we're dreaming of. Yeah, sounds fantastic. <laughs> Listen, in case anybody's interested, I'd like to express my my. In case they're wondering, I'd like to express my gratitude to Elsie the Borden Cow who was underneath his table most of the time, <laughs> swinging her cowbell. If anyone is wondering, thank you, Elsie. You were very, very good. I just don't want us not to be able to use that in case anybody needs it. Well, she couldn't possibly upstage any of you. Thank you so much for joining us thank for a stimulating discussion. We want to thank the Public Theater for hosting this edition of Working in the Theater. These programs are brought to you through the Graduate Center of City University of New York and our friends at CUNY TV. I'm Patrick Pacheco. Thanks for joining us.